David in the Bible, one of the most ferocious and successful military commanders of all time, the king of Israel and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. We cannot explain everything about the providence of God in the affairs of the world. But we can know some general rules because the Bible reveals them to us. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 29.29, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Meaning, they don't belong to us in our discussion. But the revealed things belong unto us and to our children, that we may keep all the words of this law. What is written is for us to believe and keep. What is not written and is outside the covers and pages of Scripture is His secret will that is known only to Him and to us upon its unfolding. And even then we cannot explain the whys of all that he does, but we can answer with the Lord Jesus Christ, because it seemed good in thy sight. That was Psalm 131 in verse 1. I don't want you to forget that verse, because it helps us set our attitude that we ought to have on this holy subject of true Christian charity in light of the earth's response to the Haiti earthquake of this past Tuesday. I would next like to read to you a few verses from the 66th Psalm. And you may turn there as I set a stage for reviewing what you have been taught before, but not all were here when that teaching was made. And repetition is the method of instruction, one of them, an important one of them, for you to be established in the truth, lest you be... Swayed by all of the rhetoric and persecution that's being raised against any that would have a different opinion than the United Nations Tower of Babel mentality. Psalm 66. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. Selah. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doing toward the children of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in him. He ruleth by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Two selahs for us to stop and consider what we have just read. 
But I want you to know that the word terrible is used to describe the God that we worship. Our Father in heaven is terrible. He is terrible in both testaments. It is the result of ignorant teaching or malicious teaching by men who don't know what they're talking about, who stand in pulpits, that would teach anyone that the God of the New Testament is different from the God of the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So Paul hadn't recognized the change in God's nature, because he would also say in Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't change. How in the world can you change truth? How in the world can you change righteousness? How in the world can you change holiness, justice, judgment? He doesn't change. So we want to come and see the works of God. Some are recorded in the pages of Scripture, and some are unfolded before our very eyes in our own generation. I have preached before. It was four, it was five years and a month ago after the Asian tsunami took out a quarter of a million people and ravaged the coast of a bunch of Muslim and Hindu nations around the Pacific and Indian Ocean. We dealt with this same subject. I want to expand upon it a little bit today and establish your hearts and your minds and our children's hearts and minds to know what the true people of God have, how they have viewed such events in the past and how the Lord wants us to view them in the present. On Tuesday at 4.53 in the afternoon, Haitian time, an earthquake of magnitude of about 7.0 struck the island of Haiti about 8.1 miles beneath the surface just 15 miles or so from beneath the capital city of Port-au-Prince, and basically devastated that pitifully built little country that doesn't really have any rules or engineering to, uh, to build buildings in any way that, that are going to hold up to much. They just all collapse like a house of cards. My favorite pictures coming out of the place are the pictures of their national treasure. Their national treasure was built in the last 50 years of the 1800s in the first couple of decades of the 20th century. And it's called the Cathedral of Our Lady of the Assumption. And it's in the capital city of Port-au-Prince. And I've got a couple pictures of it for you afterwards. But it looks like an A-bomb went off inside it. There isn't one square foot of roof left on the whole thing. And I mean, the thing covered city blocks. It was huge. And it was their national treasure. But I bless the God of heaven. He has a few things to say about the Roman Catholic religion in the Bible. They are found specifically, for those of you that are not aware of that, in Daniel chapter 7 about a little horn growing out of the decayed Roman Empire as Daniel describes a man who was going to arise that would speak blasphemous things against the God of heaven and think to change times and laws and seasons and would change the truth of God into a lie. The Apostle Paul would pick up this little horn growing out of the Roman Empire, which is the popes of Rome and the authority that they took to themselves to rule over Christendom and to be able to say that without the Roman pontiff, there is no possibility of salvation. The Apostle Paul would pick up on this man of sin and call him the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, where he would tell Bible believers that Jesus Christ cannot return until the man of sin is fully revealed after a great falling away from apostolic truth. There has to come a falling away first, then the man of sin is fully revealed second, then the Lord Jesus Christ can come. Most of Christendom, who thinks no deeper than Tim LaHaye's movie, Left Behind, thinks that Jesus Christ comes first, 
Then the man of sin is revealed, totally contrary to the word of God, where Paul said, let no man deceive you by any means, including movies. To think that Christians would watch a movie and think there's truth in them by a man named Tim LaHaye. He doesn't have a clue about Bible prophecy. He can't even get to A in the alphabet in Bible prophecy. All our fathers understood what I'm telling you right now without exception. 200 years ago, no one had ever heard the ideas that are preached in churches today as gospel truth that Tim LaHaye illustrates in his movie. No one had ever heard of such things. Not one person. Because it is entirely the figment of modern imaginations worshipping Jewish fables coming out of the twisted minds of Edward Irving and John Darby and C.I. Schofield 150 years ago. All our fathers that died at the stakes at the hands of Rome understood the truth that I'm telling you. That out of the decayed Roman Empire, when it would have ten horns, meaning that the emperor had been taken away and had moved his residence to Constantinople, and the Roman Empire had degenerated into the ten common market nations of Europe, there would arise a little horn that would wage war with the saints of God for 1260 years. In schools, they used to call that period of time the Dark Ages. Now they're called the Middle Ages to take that adjective dark off the Roman Catholic Church and its government of Europe. The Apostle Paul picked up on that and called it the man of sin, who sits in the temple of God, claiming to have a church in Rome, and is to be worshipped above all that is called God. Paul would take up on the great falling away that he's described in 2 Thessalonians 2 by describing it as the doctrine of devils in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the first three verses where he would say that two of the doctrines of devils that would come out of this great falling away would be the commanding to abstain from meat. Now, see, I ran a restaurant for a while, and I went to a public school system. I know that in Michigan, on Fridays in a public school system, fish sticks were served, even as a little child. And that many of the cars in our community had a little statue of St. Christopher on their dash that was going to safely get them from their des- to their destination. I saw that with my own eyes. I ran a restaurant, and I know how many people would come in with crazy, craziness, craziness, craziness. Stuff from their fireplace on their forehead. Craziness. Ashes rubbed into their forehead. They looked like Hindus. They called themselves... Catholics. But they would come in and they would order a vegetarian pizza or a vegetarian sandwich during Lent or on Friday. This is after they had celebrated Mardi Gras. Do you all understand what Mardi Gras is? It's a modified version of what takes place in Haiti. It's Fat Tuesday in French. Mardi Gras. Fat Tuesday. Meaning... Let's go gorge ourselves till we're sick on eating so that we can handle our pretended fast of Lent. If you've ever read the Catholic rules for fasting during Lent, there's no fast involved at all. 
It's a total joke compared to the fast of the Bible. Our brother John would take up in Revelations chapters 12, 13, 17, and 18 the same symbology of Daniel chapter 7 about the rise of the Roman Catholic Church. Please don't be confused by the book of Revelation. It is not yet to be fulfilled. It has been and is being fulfilled. Because in the very first verse, it says it describes things which must shortly come to pass. Now, are you able to read? It describes the same decayed Roman Empire being revived. A beast is not the president of the United Nations with a glowing purple 666 in his forehead. The beast is a kingdom on the earth. And the kingdom died, and then it came back to life. The Roman Empire died. The Visigoths overran the city of Rome in 476 A.D., but out of those ruins, that beast came back to life, and it was an empire called the Holy Roman Empire, or known today as the Roman Catholic Church. The professed religion of the island of Haiti is Roman Catholicism. The actual practice of the island of Haiti is voodoo, witchcraft. Sorcery, spirit worship, the two go together well. The book of Revelation chapter 18 says that within Babylon, every foul bird has found its dwelling place. It is the spirit of Antichrist. It is Antichrist. It is opposed to everything that Jesus Christ stood for. We could preach, and it sounds like we are, on Roman Catholicism, but I want to remind you of what we're dealing with. We are dealing with the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth is centered in Rome, Italy. The Hindus don't have anything against Jesus. They don't even know him. I've debated Hindus, Jews, and Roman Catholics. I remember early in the, early in my banking career, having the three of them in a room with me. The Hindu says, who's Jesus? They don't know who Jesus is. The Jew said, he was just another man like anyone else. The Catholic says he's the mother of God. I mean, he's the son of Mary, who was the mother of God. Confusion. But they're the ones that take up the name of Christ. If you were to ask and look in an almanac, what religion does Haiti have? It would say it's a Christian nation. But its Christianity is the false Christianity, the anti-Christian Christianity of Roman Catholicism, coupled with voodooism. Voodoo, spirit worship. Everyone knew that before Tuesday. The whole world knew that about Haiti. They still know that about Haiti. New Orleans is just a little microcosm of reflection of what goes on in Haiti. Well, on Tuesday at 4.53 in the afternoon, this... Earthquake struck and shook the foundations of that nation, and it came tumbling down. The interior minister is saying that there'll be 200,000 dead when they're all accounted for, but there won't be an accounting because the nation doesn't know how to account. They don't know who lives there and who's alive and who's dead. They're not going to be able to figure it out. They're burning corpses in the roads in big piles to block the relief that's coming in because the relief didn't get there fast enough and bring enough. That's the way they've always lived, looking for a handout. That's why they're 
per capita income is 1,300 U.S. dollars per year. You say, when is poverty such a terrible thing? It just shows that God certainly hasn't blessed that nation and voodoo worship and Roman Catholicism doesn't get you anywhere. The poorest nations on earth are generally the Roman Catholic nations. Right. Open your eyes and look. Because of the superstition that invades the hearts and the minds of the people that live there, they can't think. If you're a Roman Catholic and you think that you can pray to a statute in the 21st century and going to be heard, if you believe that in Yugoslavia there is a statue of Mary that has tears running out of its eyes, if you believe that when you put a cracker on your tongue that dissolves like the saltines in your cupboard, that it's God in his body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, you have said, I don't have a mind. I am a mindless zombie of the effeminate boy lover in Rome. So God sent an earthquake. We understand the nation. We make generalizations about nations because the Bible makes generalizations about nations. The Bible makes its generalization about a nation, and there are more examples than this, but I've already mentioned this one, and it's Crete. The island of Crete and the Cretans are picked on by the Holy Spirit in Titus chapter 1 because they were always liars. They had a worldwide reputation of being liars, of being vicious, and of being lazy. Titus chapter 1. We believe it. We accept it. We understand that when one minister is communicating to another, it's perfectly appropriate to warn him, I've left you in the island of Crete, but you've got some problems there. You've got some Jewish prophets that are teaching Jewish fables. You need to shut their mouths. This is what it says. Right. I'm not making up things. Check out anything I say. Anything I say that's apart from the Word of God has no weight unless it's proved by the Word of God. And then that the populace that those churches were established among had some serious character problems. Lying, viciousness, and slothfulness. So, thus, our willingness to say that the nation of Haiti is a mess, has been a mess, is an anti-Christian mess, is a dysfunctional mess. Haven't you read the news reports that are saying on a good day the nation is totally dysfunctional? There's no infrastructure. There's no authority. Now it's really messed up. Enough about that. What does the Bible have to say about the God of heaven and his operations among men? You know, Christians start with one thing. Our foundation is that there's a creator God in heaven with eternal power and Godhead, and his scriptures reveal the details about him. That's where Bible Christians start. There is a God in heaven that is dreadful and terrible to whom we shall all give an account of our lives who judges the wicked and blesses the righteous. Verily, there is a reward in the earth for the righteous. There is a reward for those that diligently seek God and there is punishment for those that stand against him. When Moses was privileged to see the glory of God, he heard about God's kindness and God's forgiveness toward his own. But as part of that message... When God pulled his hand away from his backsides and showed Moses his glory, part of that glory was he rewards those that hate them to their face. Christians start with the premise that there's a God in heaven and he's declared his glory and that the Bible is is where we go to receive the direction for our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. These are verses that you're well familiar with. But you've got to pull these familiar verses together 
to establish our proper attitude in this situation. To the law and to the prophets. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. This is the word of God. Whenever you hear someone with an idea, it may sound good to your flesh. But if it doesn't line up with the law and the prophets, that's a way of describing the Old Testament which was then in existence, there is no light in it. It is total nonsense. It says no light, not a little light, not some light. There is no light in them. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. That is the sweet psalmist of Israel. That's David talking. Lord, when I read your word, I esteem, I lift up and hold very important everything that you have said about every subject. And I hate every contrary opinion. No matter if it's held by many or few, no matter if it's held by the educated or the ignorant, no matter if it's held by the rich and famous, or the poor and unknown. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. We go to the Bible to determine our practice. We don't take our practice to the Bible for support. We go to the Bible to find out what we ought to be doing. There is not an event in nature or that occurs among men that God has not previously planned, is presently directing, and using it for the praise of His own glory. The Bible says in Proverbs 16:4, the Lord hath made all things for himself. In case you think that he might have some exceptions to that, he adds an extreme example so that you won't miss the point. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Proverbs 16:4. Revelation 4:11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Psalm 76 and verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. God restrains every bit of wrath that he is not going to use to his own glory and praise. So that if any wrath of man appears anywhere in the world, it is by God's foreordination, predestination, Purpose, plan, direction for his own praise and glory. Otherwise, he'd restrain it. And he restrains a whole lot of it, but sometimes he unleashes it. What the Bible calls a terrible disaster, we call an act of God. For the infinite reasons known to him. My brethren, it is hard to think, speak, and act on Bible authority alone when pagans and Christians are entirely united against us on this matter. It is hard. It is hard for me to do what I'm doing right now, though you may think that I enjoy doing this. I will do it for God's glory, and I will do it according to His Word, but it is hard to do it because my flesh agrees with the world and carnal Christians that have banded together. And I have to fight my flesh, I have to fight the world and carnal Christians, and I have to fight the devil, just like you do. But it's hard to stand on God's Word alone. Because we're alone. This wouldn't have been a problem a hundred years ago. This nation understood where Roman Catholicism came from a hundred years ago. Just 40 years ago, they didn't think that there was a chance that John F. Kennedy could be elected president of this country because he was a Roman Catholic. I'm talking 40 years. 200 years ago, it was a crime 
to celebrate the holy days of the Catholic Church in this nation and in Puritan-driven England. Things have changed. It's hard. If there was ever a subject that will separate you from pagans and carnal Christians alike, this is it. Right now. These little social do-gooders that don't have a good bone in their body will make you feel guilty for trusting the God of heaven and listening and following His priorities for your charitable giving. If there was ever a subject that will separate you, it's this one. But that does not mean that we have to go out and separate ourselves by bringing it up in public. That is just foolishness. We don't need to bring it up in public. If we're asked about it, we can give a grave and sober and calm answer. We can describe our hierarchy of charitable giving. If need be, tell them what percentage you give of your income, because I can tell you this, in nine times out of ten, it will be ten times theirs. Because it takes an event like this to squeeze one percent out of their pockets. Nine times out of ten, hear me. There is so much in the Bible on this subject that it's hard to know what to include and what to exclude for your profit. But this subject will separate you, so I warn you to beware. A fool utters all his mind, but a wise man keeps it in until afterwards. You don't have to go around and tell anybody where you stand on Haiti. Just let them get all enraptured about it and and work up to their 1% giving while they abort their babies due to their fornicating. You don't have to bring it up. Don't paint a bullseye on your chest and stand in the street and say, shoot me. Don't miss. The Lord expects us to be wise and prudent. We're to be harmless as doves and wise as serpents. And that means shut up about it. We don't have to go give our mysteries to the king, to the rest of the world. You know why they're called mysteries in the Bible? Because they don't understand them. They never will understand them. And there is no amount of explanation that you could ever give them to help them understand. They're called mysteries because they're unrevealed to the world. And the Bible is full of them. And we are full of mysteries that God has given to us because we are his children. And he takes us into his library of 66 volumes. And he opens them up to us and shows us the volumes. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. Jesus said about his own coming. We are so blessed. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Plus a whole lot of other mysteries. If they'd have known these mysteries, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, they would not have touched the Lord of glory. The, the, the centurion that put a leather glove on his hand and punched my Savior in the face, 1 Corinthians 2 tells me that if he had known that Jesus was the Lord of glory, he wouldn't have touched him. We know him. Jesus Christ is no longer standing in humiliation in Pilate's judgment hall. He is sitting on a throne in God's judgment hall. And he's ruling the nations with a rod of iron and dashing them in pieces. And some of those pieces into pieces, like Haiti on Tuesday afternoon. My Lord Jesus Christ. When was the last time you heard Jimmy Dobson, Benny Hinn, or Ricky Warren on Psalm 137? Psalm 137 is talking about Babylon. Here's what the psalmist says. This is the word of God. I don't know anything else to preach except the Bible to you. This is what the Bible says. And you don't have to go hunting and pecking for it. It's everywhere. 
You can't get past the sixth chapter before the God of heaven is pouring so much water on this earth. He takes the bathtub of this earth and pushes down every infant child and every senior citizen and suffocates them underwater. And if you don't like hearing it like that, you don't like the God of the Bible and you don't like the Bible of the Creator God of heaven. Because that's the truth. You can't get six chapters into the 1189 of the Bible before you run into that event. In Psalm 137, it says this, speaking about Babylon, the enemies of Israel, happy shall he be that dasheth, that dasheth thy little ones against a stone. Here comes a soldier and takes a two-year-old by his ankles, raises them up, and dashes his brains out in a stone. It's Psalm 137. You don't like to hear it? It's too harsh? It's sin and it's judgment. And when they are God's enemies, it is something to be happy about. Psalm 137. I have to preach to you the Bible. I'm not going to preach to you the purpose-driven life. I'm going to preach the purpose-driven God of the Bible. He's got a purpose. And it was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And it's glorious. We're His children. We are separate from this nation. We are strangers and pilgrims in this nation. We are part of a holy nation. We are of God, little children, and have overcome them. They are of the world, therefore they don't know us. On and on it says this in the Bible. My little children, don't be surprised when the world hates you, because it hated me first. If it hated me, it's certainly going to hate you. We are different. We are a secret society. Every Christian church on earth that is worshiping in spirit and in truth today is a secret society with secret mysteries unknown to the world, and they have a bond among themselves with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that are going to, that's going to deliver them out of this world when this world is burning and on fire and everything melting with fervent heat. We will be taken out of here to be with our Father in heaven forever because He adopted us by special, gracious, merciful adoption. We are His family. And it's called the household of faith in the Bible. And while you are supposed to respond to the worldings that God puts in your path, in your ordinary course of business, and that certainly isn't Haiti, you're to especially show mercy and kindness toward the household of faith. Because we are bound together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Blood is thicker than blood. Do you know why they're running to Haiti? Because they're humanists. And they're in love with each other. They love the human race. They think that the human race is something special. The only blood that matters in this world is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not human blood. It is not your family blood. It is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the precious purchase price of us to become the children of God. God is king over all the earth. Do you all believe the Bible record of the flood? Of what he did at the Tower of Babel? Of what he did to Egypt? Of what he did to the seven nations of Canaan? You can't find them. Do you know why you can't find them? They're annihilated. How about the city of Babylon and the the empire of Nebuchadnezzar? Destroyed. How about the city of Jerusalem and the rebels that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? And other desolations that the Bible describes. I just mentioned a few. We believe that those historical events that are found in the Bible rightly and correctly reflect the nature of the God of heaven towards sin and sinners. 
Therefore, all nations that forget God shall be turned into hell. Psalm 9, 16 and 17, which I read to you last Lord's Day. Look at Malachi chapter 1. He makes a difference between nations. And if you don't want to recognize that difference, you are willfully ignorant. You're willfully blind. There is no blindness so great as the the desire not to see. Or the choice not to see. Malachi chapter 1. Verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. This is the last book of the Old Testament. There's too many pages turning. It scares me. One of the first things children ought to do is memorize the 66 books of the Bible in order so that you can find where you're going. Don't. I'm sorry for those of you that are still looking. Maybe your hand was asleep. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Verse 2 of Malachi chapter 1. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom the other name for Esau, the nation of Esau, the Edomites. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness. And the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Now there's borders between nations where God makes a difference between nations. He loves some and hates others. Do you don't like it? Then you don't like the God of the Bible. Don't fight me. Fight Scripture. Go ahead. Go outside and raise your fist to God and tell Him, I hate a God that would hate any nation. Tell Him. Tell Him that. This is the God of the Bible. I love them. I love them because I hate those nations too. And I hate those nations, first of all, because he hates them. When they stand up against God and they dance around trees and beg for the devil to come into them and call themselves Christians, they got what they deserved. And they say, well, we're impoverished. We are the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, but we're going to rebuild. And he'll say, I'm going to tear you down again. Go read about what happened to them in the year 2008. You say, that was just a year ago. Uh huh. Go read about it. The four storms that came through Haiti and what it had already done to that island before the earthquake came last Tuesday. This is the Bible, though, and what we're looking at is God is king over all the earth, and he's grinding the wicked under divine justice, and he did it before, and he's doing it now. The Bible in the New Testament says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible in the New Testament says that our God is a consuming fire. The the Bible in the New Testament says, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing the terror of the Lord, I'm trying to preach to you this morning. He makes a difference among men far worse than directing earthquakes. You think what happened in Haiti was all that bad? It was nothing. How about having your soul cast into the lake of fire? That That is an infinitely worse punishment than anything that happened. I don't care if you were alive for three days under the rubble and then he died. From thirst? That's nothing compared to being in the lake of fire 
where the rich man said, could I have a finger dipped in water to put one drop on my parched tongue? But you know what? God makes that difference. If God makes that difference, why do you get alarmed about him making differences between nations? Or don't you thank the God of heaven that you were born in America to parents that gave you a decent start in most cases in this family? Aren't you thankful for those things? It is a God's choice. It is God's choice that right now you don't have your hand stuck down in some rice paddy, putting some little shoot in, and with your hope that someday you're going to have a holiday where you can eat a fish's head. And going home and worshiping some little statue of grandpa and grandma. It's by God's mercy. It is God's grace. God makes differences in men's lives. And nowhere in the Bible, not not one sentence, should we ever apologize that God had mercy on us. We'll admit that it's pure mercy. We were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Because Ephesians 2 tells us that. And we know it by looking inside our hearts that we're no different from them. But God had mercy on us and adopted us. When a father goes into an orphanage to adopt a child, he can't adopt them all. He doesn't adopt them all. How would you ever show benevolence if you adopted them all? Because you wouldn't show the consequences of not adopting them. Look at Romans chapter 9. The Bible declares this very plainly. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the Bible. The only way that adoption out of an orphanage has meaning and value and would cause you to praise his great, the great and glorious name of your adoptive father throughout all eternity is to know what happened to the rest of the children in the orphanage that were not so chosen and adopted. And God knows this. And God declares this to us. Romans chapter 9, verse 21. Half, not the, just for the sake of, just, just to help you out with getting your arms around the Bible. Romans chapter 9 quotes from Malachi chapter 1. Look at verse 13. It was said unto her, the elder, no, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Where was that written? That was written in Malachi chapter 1 that we just came from. Just, I just wanted to mention that to you. So that you'd know that Romans 9 is right in the same kind of theme that Malachi chapter 1 was on. But verse 21 is what I want. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? A potter at a spinning wheel can reach into a bucket and get, out, get some clay out and make something beautiful. And he can get some clay out and make something ugly. And God is that potter. He's using the example to illustrate his own power over the human race. Verse 22, what if God, willing, now here's how he makes vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. What if God, willing, 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 what if God, willing, to show his wrath, God wants to show that he's angry? What if God, Willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. That's one kind of vessel the potter makes. One to dishonor so that he can show his wrath and his power by making anything he wants. He did not make men sin because they chose to sin themselves, but he made men that did sin and he consigns them to the just punishment that they deserve. Right. Verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. What does it mean afore? It means before the foundation of the world, he had chosen to make some human of the human race out of the clay that makes up mankind vessels of glory to be in heaven with him forever. 
that he might make known. He was, he was willing to make known the riches of his mercy and the glory of his mercy on those that were prepared to glory. Verse 24, even us, Paul writing the Romans, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Not only out of the Jews, but also out of the Gentiles. Not all the Jews, not all the Gentiles, but out of making up the church at Rome and the Apostle Paul and his apostolic fellow laborers. God is king over all the earth. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to read what I mentioned to you before. Let me just quickly cut past what I've already said. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that the man of sin must rise and sit in the temple of God and profess that he is God and above God and and will be worshipped above all that is called God, after there's a great falling away or apostasy from the truth before the Lord Jesus Christ can come. Plainly taught right here. Not not taught hardly anywhere else. Bible prophecy, very important. For speculative purposes about the future, no. To understand passages like this and to know about our brethren who gave their lives at the hands of this monster. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there wasn't any doubt about its interpretation 200 years ago. There wasn't much doubt about its interpretation 100 years ago. It is only by pastors selling the the C.I. Schofield Bible and, and showing movies like A Thief in the Night or Left Behind that have ruined the understanding of passages like this. Look at verse 3. It says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come. Jesus Christ cannot return until the Antichrist is fully exposed and functioning in the world. And who is that Antichrist? It's the popes of Rome. Straight out of Daniel chapter 7. But notice what God does to Roman Catholics and how they can believe such a stupid religion. A fairy walking around in white pajamas with a Dagon fish hat on his head. Have you ever looked at a pope's hat? It's shaped like this. Called his tiara. Have you looked at it? It's a fish's mouth. It's from the priests of Dagon, the Philistine fish god. Because the Philistines were on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. We could go on for hours. He wears white pajamas. He has sworn off all women. Because he prefers men. The Catholics themselves know that over 50% of all their priests in the United States are sodomites. Oh, I never finished. I was going wild there in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I got off on ashes on the forehead and vegetarian pizzas, and I was starting to think of lunch. And I lost. I said there were two points of doctrine in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Two points of doctrine that are called doctrines of the devil. That are part of the apostasy falling away from apostolic truth. The first was commanding to abstain from meats. Meaning that you couldn't eat meat. That there was something wrong with meat. That you had to eat fish on Friday. The second is forbidding to marry. What religion in the world claiming to be Christian has a doctrine of the devil that forbids men to marry? The Roman Catholic Church. Nuns can't marry. Priests can't marry. It's one of their seven sacraments. Orders. Holy orders. And they swear off ever marrying. Right out of First Timothy chapter 4. Praise the God of heaven. The Bible is so plain. Yeah. You know what it takes to believe that you put a cracker in your mouth and the priest says to you, the Lamb of God. And you say, we are not worth... Have you ever been to a Catholic Mass? Yeah. You need to go to a Catholic Mass. 
The whole congregation says, we are not worthy to have you under our roof. Coming out of a plastic container in a blue box, a saltine. We are not worthy to have you under our roof. And if there's not enough people there to eat them all, they take the leftovers and scrape them up and go put them in a little doghouse over at the side, up on a wall. It's made out of gold. And they get down to the doghouse where they put the leftovers of their little dog god. Their little cracker god. Do I hate that religion? I hate that religion with all my might. He calls himself the vicar of Jesus Christ. He says that Mary is the mother of God. He not only wants to be called father, contrary to what Jesus said about all religious people in your life, he wants to be called most holy and reverend father. Here's how they believe it. How can you believe such garbage? How can you end up being as poor as a Roman Catholic nation? Here's how. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 Even him, speaking of the man of sin or the popes of Rome, whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. When you have a nation that's given itself over to Roman Catholicism and voodoo worship, spirit worship, begging to be inhabited and possessed by the devil, then you've got the fulfillment of these four verses right here. What is our attitude? Let me cut to the chase. I've only made it through about one page of a nine-page outline, but let me, let me cut to the chase right here in verse 13. But we are bound. You know I love this verse. But we are bound. You are a slave. You and I are bond slaves today to do this. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. Brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. God made choice that the truth would be sent to us, but the truth would not come and fall just on natural ears. The Holy Spirit would sanctify us first so that we would have sanctified spiritual ears that would hear, receive, believe, and accept that truth. And we would be saved from what went before in the first 12 verses. The salvation here is not so much the salvation from the lake of fire as it is salvation from the lies of the man of sin, the popes of Rome. What delivers a person out of the clutches of the popes of Rome and and its priests? God's choice and sanctification of the Spirit so that they would believe the truth. So we're bound to give thanks. We're bond slaves. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for showing me the truth. Thank you, Lord, for putting the love of the truth inside me, because if you hadn't done that, though you would show me the truth, I would have rebelled against it. It's all of grace. And to God be the glory. Great things He hath done. Brethren, we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We are only passing through. We are citizens of a holy nation. We have a different pledge of allegiance than the foolish little rote thing that they say in this nation. We have one that is far greater than theirs. And it is the, it is the waters of baptism where we are buried and raised again out of water in an emblematic following of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Where we are baptized in these words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now that's a much higher order. While we are citizens of America 
And we will do our limited best to help them in certain situations. We are above that and beyond that citizens of a holy nation. First Peter chapter 2 is so powerful because it's telling the Jews. First Peter 2 was not written to Gentiles. Peter wrote First Peter. And Peter was a minister of the circumcision. And he calls them to the, the 12 tribes scattered abroad and strangers scattered abroad throughout various places where these Jews lived. The Jews are told to be part of a holy nation by having followed Jesus Christ. They weren't part of a holy nation by being Jews. They were part of a holy nation by being baptized. Baptism is how we enter the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a king on a throne. We are his citizens. We have fellow citizens. We have fellow citizens that are already in heaven. Does the Bible use the word fellow citizens? Am I making any of this up? Does Ephesians chapter 2 describe it as we are fellow citizens with the saints? David's my fellow citizen. He just happens to be in heaven. Abraham's my fellow citizen. He just happens to be in heaven. Zacchaeus is up there. I want to see if he's shorter than me. But he's in heaven, and I'm a fellow citizen with him. We're going to go see our fellow citizens. We are part of another nation. And do you know where our first loyalties lie? With that nation. Only if we have some leftovers. And then God puts something smack dab right in the middle of our path in our ordinary course of business. Do we care about the other nations of the earth, including our own? Our first call of duty, family. Next call of duty, our church. Next call of duty, other churches and poor saints throughout the earth. Next call of duty, a wounded Jew that God put, or wounded anyone, that God puts in your path, in your ordinary course of business, that you did not go looking for. Right. Your eyesight should be 20-20 toward those in your family. The Bible says that if a man provide not for his own, he hath denied the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and is worse than an infidel. Right. You are worse than pagans if you do not take care of your family first. Your eyesight should be 20-20 towards your family. That includes aunts and uncles. That includes grandparents. That includes your parents. If there's anyone destitute and in trouble in your family, it is your duty to take care of them. More on this when we come back after our break. But I just want to give it to you before we leave. Our second line of responsibility is toward the poor in this church, which the Bible teaches that we are part of a body and we are supposed to take care of one another. So we should be 20-20 toward our family, 20-40 eyesight toward, financial eyesight toward those in our church, 20-60 eyesight toward poor saints and other churches. You know, we sent aid to the consequences of Hurricane Katrina a few years ago. But we sent that aid very specifically earmarked and under the hands of those who were going to deliver it to Baptist churches that believe similar things to what we believe and whose churches were damaged and whose families were suffering hardship because their homes were damaged. Just as I'm going to show you from the Bible, that's the way the Bible always taught it done in the New Testament. Fourth, we have 2020 toward family, 2020 toward family, financial eyesight, 2040 toward our church, 2060 toward saints and other churches, and 2200 toward the rest of the world. That's being legally blind. 2200 toward the rest of the world. Now, the rest of the world, that we're, the, the only part of the rest of the world that we're to be concerned with, you can't find a verse contrary to this, out of 31,101. 
is one, if God puts somebody directly in your path. The good Samaritan was good because he was a Samaritan that helped a Jew. He was on his way in the ordinary course of business. And in the ordinary course of business, going down the road, taking care of the matters of his life, family first, church second, other saints third, he came upon a wounded Jew in the ditch. That wounded Jew in a ditch, he put on his ass, carried him into town, put him in an inn, and gave enough money to get the man back on his feet. He didn't buy him a television. He didn't help him celebrate Christmas with his children. He got, he gave him enough money to get him back on his feet. That is the fourth level of charitable obligation that Christians have. You do not have the obligation to go into town and go to the convention center and say, are there any visitors here from Egypt? This is the Samaritan. This is the Samaritan coming into Jerusalem, going to the convention center, chamber of commerce, and saying, are there any visitors in town from Egypt? I want to inquire if there are any wounded Egyptians in Egypt. No, you don't do that. The good Samaritan didn't care what was happening in Egypt. He didn't care what was happening in Philistia. He didn't care what was happening in Arabia. He didn't care what was happening in Japan. All he knew is that God had just given him a new neighbor. Because the whole, par- <laughs> the whole parable is given to explain these words. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now is Haiti our neighbor? No. God hasn't put them in our path. If it was 50 years ago, you wouldn't know about it until next month when National Geographic showed it to you. If it was 100 years ago, you'd never know about it. 200,000 people would have been shoved into graves. Half of the rest of the people that were alive would have caught various diseases like malaria and dysentery, and the nation would have been pretty well wiped out. You wouldn't have known about it. God has not called us to watch all those tele-evangelists that are trying to make us feel guilty because they're humanistic rebels against the God of the Bible and the Bible of the God of heaven. And the truth that he has taught there. We do not go looking for wounded Jews. But if in our ordinary course of business, God shows us that our neighbor, who might be a Hindu, as he is in my case, on the right-hand side of my house when I'm standing on the inside looking out, If something happened to him, I would help him. If he couldn't get his car started some morning and he had to be someplace, I'd let him borrow my Jeep. Of course I would. Of course you should. And of course you would without even thinking about it. We would help. But do you know what? I don't go to websites that are showing me starving Hindu children in India. Because the Lord hasn't told me to do that. Not at all. Do you think the Lord Jesus Christ ever raised one dollar for the orphans in Egypt? Ethiopia was doing well back then, just like they are now, starving to death. Did he raise one dollar for the Ethiopians? Not on your life. What poor did he care about? The poor in his church. What was his church? The nation of Israel. What did he teach when he applied the commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself? He taught that in your ordinary course of business, if God puts someone in your path... Even if they are culturally and racially different than you, and you despise them by culture and racial differences, you will still help them. Because the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. Jesus gave a perfect illustration. In your ordinary course of business, you'll help anyone. You'll help even your personal enemies, and you'll help even your cultural enemies. 
But nowhere does it say that you're supposed to help God's enemies. And in fact, if you help God's enemies, then you are an accomplice to an enemy, and you are the enemy of God. And if you don't believe that, you need to read Second Chronicles chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, about what God said to Jehoshaphat, one of the great kings of Judah, because he helped Ahab, who was part of the church of God, but he was an enemy of God. He wasn't even a Philistine or an Egyptian. He was an Israelite. He was the king of the ten tribes. But he was a Baal-worshipping enemy of God, and God judged Jehoshaphat for helping him. He said, there are many good things with you, Jehoshaphat, but this is a bad thing that you have done. We're not part of this world, brethren. We've come out of this world. And if you're like the sweet psalmist of Israel, then you hate those that hate God because you don't want to fall into the judgment that Jehoshaphat did. The devil and the world are working together to steal our, our peace, our joy, and our praise. They're trying to make you guilty by defiling your conscience. They are trying to get to your conscience, the devil, the world, and your flesh are trying to get to your conscience to make you guilty for something that you don't have to be guilty for. The Bible says their conscience being defiled defiles everything else in their lives. And so you can't let them defile your conscience. We have our duties. We have our marching orders. We have a Christ Jesus, a Savior, and a King in heaven who's told us exactly our orders of priority. Family first. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Church next. We are members of a body and care one for another. Then, poor saints in other places that we hear about, and we are able to help. When there was a great dearth throughout all the world, in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, and a, a, a prophet named Agabus came and told the church that there was going to be a great dearth throughout all the earth. That means that there was going to be a horrible famine, and people were going to starve to death in all nations. What did the Christians do? The Christians gathered money together in Achaia, in Macedonia, which is modern Greece, and sent that money across the Mediterranean Sea to the poor saints that were in Judea. They took money out of their nation and sent it across the Mediterranean Sea to another nation because there was a higher nation that they were helping. As you have opportunity, do good to all men, but especially they who are of the household of faith. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 There were children starving in Greece, but they sent their money to Jerusalem to help the poor saints in Judea. That is the Bible order. We'll look at it. We'll look at others when we come back. Lord God, you have had mercy upon us, and we are thankful to be citizens of another nation, a holy nation, that the Lord Jesus Christ is king over, and we're thankful that he's going to come and destroy this world and take us home to live with him in his kingdom forever and ever. All glory and praise be to the grace and glory of our great God, who has loved us and saved us when we were the least deserving of all those mercies. Amen.